like <laughs> new paint. Coco, big yeah. sir. Y'all know how this shit go, you know. All eyes on me. Oh, <laughs> Roll up in the club yeah, right. All eyes on me. All eyes on me. Trapped in Austin podcast. Hey, Daniel, this is Chris with Trapped in Austin, man. I appreciate you doing uh doing this call with me today. You bet, man. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. Thanks, man. Do you do a lot of these? Do a lot of podcasts reach out to you to want to interview? You know, m- most of them being in the uh, the world of bourbon and whiskey and distilling and, and even flavor beverage. But yeah, d- done a few before. Yes, sir. Awesome, man. Yeah, well, our, our podcast is not um, exclusive to that. We're kind of an all-encompassing uh, platform. We talk about a lot of different stuff going on around Austin. And, uh, you know, over the past year or so, I've just noticed like how big of a brand you guys have turned into. I mean, I hear about it all the time. I see y'all's logo around. You guys are pretty much in every liquor store, it feels like. So, and I, I noticed a while back that we were friends on Facebook and I, I felt compelled to reach out. And, uh, you know, I felt like it was a, it was a good opportunity for me. Oh, couldn't, couldn't be more thrilled, man. You know, I'm a, although I didn't grow up in Austin, I, I consider myself a, a true Austinite. I haven't been here for gosh, over 20, 25 years now. So I'm a love the city and, and happy to be a part yeah, of it. That was actually going to be one of my questions is kind of how long you've been here. I saw on the website, you kind of grew up in West Texas. Um, speak to us a little bit about how that, how that evolution came about and, and kind of how you ended up here. Oh, you bet. So I grew up in a small town called Menard. Um, you know, go Yellow Jackets first and foremost. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Menard, uh, I, I had a graduating high school class of uh, just over 30 people and, uh, you know, pretty small place to, to grow up. My parents owned a motel and restaurant there in Menard. Um, so I grew up kind of, you know, honestly having to work quite a bit and even washing dishes at a young age and then learning how to cook and kind of quickly learned that I had a passion both for business as well as for food and beverage. <clears throat> and um, after I graduated high school, moved down to Austin to go to school at the, uh, at the University of Texas mm-hmm. and uh, moved down here, um, got a job over at the Four Seasons. And uh, that was a pretty uh, transformative experience as well for several years there at the Four Seasons, learning their you know, their service standards, their approach to guest service, um, and then, of course, just the culinary education. And I, uh, I finished my first level of sommelier training while I was there, too. So it was a it was a really good spot to be, to say the least. Yeah, that four seasons. I mean, I, I was born and raised in Austin. I've, I've lived here, you know, a long time like yourself. And uh, that four seasons, it seemed like for a long time was like the premier high end hotel in Austin. I mean, now there's they're all over the place. But um yeah, I mean, my mom used to take me there when I was a kid, and we would go eat at the TJ Fridays in the back and kind of sit out where the water is. I, I miss that, though. No, definitely. You know, it's it's. I've always said it would be interesting to see a documentary of <clears throat> the group of people that worked there during that time. There's a lot of folks that I stay in touch with that have gone on to very good success and things like that. So there's something to be said about the level of training the four seasons provided. And then I also just think like you were saying, that was the place for anybody with, with, you know, a focus on talent and a true career in food and beverage of where you wanted to be the, uh, 
the only downside is what you're talking about out in the patio area. Anytime that you were, uh, you know, waiting on tables or anything like that, people would get really frustrated with you if the bats didn't fly one night. So that was always oh, one, of, <laughs> one of the downsides. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, I, uh, I have some good memories in that place, but, um, you know, how did, so how did you get into the whiskey business? I mean, where did kind of, you know, tell us about kind of how you're ascending into that. Well, so I, I, when I left the Four Seasons, you know, it was that I, I had met my soon-to-be wife, uh, Rachel, at the time, and uh, she worked in the tech business. At that point, I believe she was at a group called Motive, but that uh, was swallowed up by IBM. Okay. And uh, so she worked a pretty traditional nine-to-five job, and of course, my lifestyle <clears throat> was anything but that, so... I kind of realized that I had to make some changes to, to be around her more and, 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 and figure out what I wanted to do. So of all things, I, uh, I had got into workers' comp insurance for a while, became an adjuster, um, saw some opportunities in the business world there, and spun off with another gentleman named Nate Powell. And he and I started uh, a series of three different medical service companies that focused on the insurance world, um, basically had team of about 300 doctors that traveled around the, the Texas area for us um, and did arbitration on various issues with medical claims. Um, so that, that, that business got up and going. I eventually sold it off uh, here, gosh, about eight or nine years ago. But <clears throat> as I started doing that, you know, I really started missing the passion that I had in a career and decided to start up a small craft distillery. And at that point, we were just making a uh, rum from a commercial perspective. So Treaty Oak Platinum Rum came out back in 2006. And the concept behind it was just being able to make a Texas product from scratch, from raw ingredients. And uh, that was such a new approach that TABC at the time didn't even have a way to document that or respond to it. Wow. Because everything, everything that was going on at that point, you know, is, is, neutral grain spirit brought in and redistilling it or filtering it and cleaning it up. Um, so nobody was doing that. So I actually had to write on like legal paper and send it in, you know, how much molasses I brought in from South Texas and how we fermented and distilled and all those things. So it was a, it was an interesting start, but um, from day one, you know, I knew that whiskey was what I wanted to get into. Um, you know, during my time at the four seasons was right when there's kind of this, rebirth or reawareness, and maybe it's even better to call it a premiumization of the bourbon marketplace. And mm. um, that was whenever you saw Basil Hayden first come out as kind of this like entry level high end. And, you know, I started learning about the the Pappy Van Winkle series and Blanton's and all these different brands and got really, really enthused by that. And, and it was intriguing to me because when you look at products like whiskey, <laughs> You know, other things that are aged around the world, part of the discussion about them is, you know, where they were made and where they were aged. So that that sense of a, you know, terroir, if you will. Mm -hmm. And that conversation never really comes up with the aging of bourbon, you know, probably at that point, because 100 percent of it roughly was was made in Kentucky. You know, but a big part of making whiskey, of making bourbon is where you age it, your temperature swings your highs and lows, what those means, your humidity, all kinds of different factors like that. So as we started making Texas bourbon, you know, we started, I think we made our first batch in 2007. Mm. Um, 
and we didn't release any of our own in-house made bourbons um, until I think it was about 2017, 2016. So we spent right at 10 years experimenting and educating ourselves, learning mash bills, because we wanted to be obsessive about this and, and create something that was truly made for Texas. And so, you know, the grains that we use are, are all Texas grains with the exception of the barley, you know, the limestone filtered water out here in Dripping Springs, these hot, scorching Texas summers. Yeah. So we've just kind of figured out how you take all of those ingredients and drive them ahead. But, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, my uh, during the pandemic, my bread education of learning how to make sourdoughs and all these different things. And it's like every day you can make a new batch with the bourbons and the whiskeys. We'd make a mistake and we wouldn't realize it was a mistake for two years. Oh, and wow. So there's, there's, there's a humbling part of that process, too, that kind of makes you realize that, you know, you're just a part of a conversation, a stepping stone, if you will, and that, you know, things are going to continue to change over time. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I don't know a ton about the distilling process. I'm kind of a novice to some of this stuff, but it, it almost seems like, you know, if one additive is off a little bit, I mean, is it going to just throw the whole batch off? I mean, do you just basically have to kind of discard the whole batch at that point? Or what's the what's the protocol typically? You know, that, that's that's the approach that we took. You know, a lot of other um, as you get bigger and bigger, it's easier to cover up your mistakes because you can blend them into massively large batches. I see. Um, but, you know, really with that initial process, you, you're changing such vast um, elements from using different yeast to are you going to be a weeded bourbon or a high rye, different things like that. And there's just so many different factors that it's it's even just fine tuning to the point that it's, it's like, you know, the way I would say is like adding your salt and pepper whenever you're finishing searing off a steak or something. But with the whiskey, like all of that has to happen on day one. You don't get a chance to change what you put into the barrel. I see. Yeah. How many, like just on average, I mean, how many barrels are you guys storing, you know, on a, just any given day, if I'm using the right nomenclature there, I mean, what's, I mean, you guys have a huge facility out there in Dripping Springs. I mean, are you guys storing like hundreds of barrels or what's, what kind of, you know, huge, talking about? huge is always kind of in the eye of the beholder a little mm -hmm. bit because we're, we're huge compared to what we once were and, right. and, and also kind of by the craft distilling standards, but microscopic compared to a lot of our Kentucky brethren. I mean, those guys are much, much larger. But, but with what sense. we have now and the, the still that we're working with, um, we had a you know, rather down year in production with COVID and us switching over to doing sanitizers and different things like that. Um, so not a big year of production this last year, but currently we have a uh, little over five, five to 6,000 barrels in storage right now. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, um, and then we also have, we, we've, so we, we produce here at Treaty Oak, the Ghost Hill bourbon, the day drinker, um, as well as several different special mashes and releases that we do. So all of those are made here and aged here, but our red handed bourbon is actually a story of us making bourbon and aging it in Kentucky. So we've also got a few thousand barrels over at Bardstown Distilling in Kentucky. And the, uh, the fun part of that of working with, uh, with Bardstown is that we were able to go in there and actually fully control the mash bill, the yeast, the barrel char level, uh, the, the distillate proof, the barrel entry proof, every little aspect of production. <laughs> so it's truly us getting to make a Kentucky bourbon. And we chose to make it a high rye. Um, 
And what I mean when I say high rye, all bourbons have to legally be at least 51%. Um, and then you're going to have a portion of the bourbon that is a malted barley that kicks off your fermentation process. Mm -hmm. But then your third adjunct grain um, is usually going to be either wheat or rye. And we found that the weeded bourbons do very well here in Texas because they're softer, they're sweeter, they can tolerate the heat a little bit more versus rye brings in a spiciness, kind of like a more harsh finish, which in my opinion makes wonderful bourbons over time, but you have to age in a softer climate. So that's why we do the high rye in Kentucky and the weeded bourbons here in Texas. Okay. Um, what kind of separates the Texas whiskey distilling business? kind of a, aside from like, you know, Kentucky and Tennessee, obviously they're kind of the summit, you know, of, of whiskey distilling, but you know, is it, is it a competitive market here? Do you see it growing? Like kind of speak to that a little bit where you kind of see um, Texas whiskey distilling kind of going over time. Well, in Texas, you can open carry your bourbon. That's the, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. Now the, you know, the, the, the big difference, um, Kentucky obviously has a huge leg up just in the amount of time they've been making and how they can understand their climate and, and what their outcome is. There's a, there's a saying around the Kentucky area that making great bourbon is really easy. All it takes is that your dad and your granddad made great bourbon and you've got good bourbon. So they've, uh, they've kind of got it where it's a family tradition that's legacy. passed down. Yeah versus here. So, so I think that the, the big difference for us is obviously the temperature and the aging process, um, as well as us beginning to dig into using some different grains. So the grains are what have become very interesting to me um, of late. We work with a gentleman, a good, good friend of mine, James Brown, who runs the Barton Springs Mill, which is actually um, adjacent to Treaty Oak now. He bought some property from us and built his new mill there. So he handles all of our grain needs and a lot of what James and I talk about is, you know, various heirloom um, strands, things that have been kind of forgotten that you can bring into. So, so what I would say is that while Kentucky has got, they're a little bit longer in the tooth, if you will, and they've got the experience that we don't have, we sure as hell have the innovation and the drive in Texas. And I think that Texas has a sense of pride and you've got various other distilleries out there really pushing themselves and, and pushing us. And, you know, it's a, it's a friendly competitive arena where everybody tries to raise themselves up, but you know, we're, we're proud to stand alongside folks like Garrison brothers, um, Balcones, uh, Andalusia. So there's a lot of really good whiskeys coming out of Texas and we're just proud to be a part of that story. Yeah. It seems like you guys are really kind of at the head of all this from, from what I gather, you know, at least here in central Texas. Um, like I said, I mean, I, you know, I always hear about you guys, their acquaintances, uh, a lot of people love going out there, obviously, to your uh, the ranch out there in Dripping Springs. Um, yeah, I think you guys have a really bright future for sure. One of, one of the things I was going to ask you is you guys do, is all of the manufacturing as well done there in Dripping Springs, like as far as the bottling goes? It currently is, yes, sir. Okay, that's what I thought. I think that's really cool that you guys have it all integrated right there on the ranch. I mean, that's that's really the way I think for any entrepreneur who's starting a business, I think that's always kind of the dream is to just like have everything there at your HQ from, you know, A to Z. Oh, you're absolutely right. And, and one of the biggest things for us was whenever, gosh, I guess it was back in 2015 um, when myself and uh, 
one of the guys that's been with me the absolute longest here, Joshua Holland, he and I went down to the Capitol multiple, multiple trips. And as me serving as the president of the Texas Distilled Spirits Association, got a lot of the rather archaic laws changed here in Texas. Now, we got great support from everybody from the Texas Package Store Association to Discus, um, Texas Restaurant Association, everybody, the distributors, Republic National, everybody getting behind us. And we were able to make it where we can sell bottles and cocktails at a distillery. And, you know, that, that seems commonplace now, but, but when we first started, we couldn't have any visitors even inside of our distillery. And so flipping yeah. that to where we're able to be a tourist destination and we're able to share our story. And then we're also able to get into the food and beverage side as well as music, because for us, what, what Treaty Oak is all about, it's, it's three things, man. It's, it's Texas whiskey, Texas music, and Texas barbecue. And those are the three things that I'm passionate about and our teams are. And just where we like to be able to have people come out to a place that, you know, you I think you'll probably be able to appreciate this growing up in Austin is reminiscent more of, you know, the 90s version of Austin and kind of what, yeah. what it was like then when there's a lot of outdoor space and, you know, good food and music and drinks and us being able to share that and, and showing that we take our our whiskey making, our barbecue and our cocktails ridiculously seriously, but in no way do we take ourselves too seriously. Yeah, that kind of seems to be, you know, it's interesting. One of the things you mentioned um, kind of about getting the laws changed is I have noticed this kind of uptick or new trend, if you will, kind of in the last like maybe five to seven years where it just seems like, I mean, you know, obviously there was always like wineries, like people go to wine, you know, they'll go to like a winery and do wine tastings. But you're starting to see a lot more of like, like the whole brewery culture has gotten really big or, you know, going to distilleries now. So is that kind of what you were speaking to in regards, like getting kind of that stuff changed so you can actually go and, you know, go to a brewery now or go to um, a distillery? Because I, I mean, like 10 years ago, I never really heard of people like, hey, we're going to go hang out at the brewery. But now that's like what everybody talks about. Do you know why that trend has kind of gotten more popular now is you know it because I, of the laws changing or is it just because a lot more people are getting into microbrewing you know I, th I think it's a combination kind of a multitude of factors that play in there um I, th I think it's definitely the changing of the laws because it couldn't happen without that first and foremost but yeah i think i think secondary to that is because you know one of the demands that as technology has moved forward as as we've become a world where transparency isn't just you know whenever we first started at treaty oak i would say that we wanted transparency to be a key tenant of what we were doing to always be honest and open and tell our processes and kind of move away from this man behind the the curtain if you will with distilling where nobody knows what it means and people say stuff like you know fourteen thousand times distilled vodka that's all just frankly bullshit. and right. we wanted to be able to be open and honest but but in today's world you know, uh, 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 I would say a really cool aspect of what technology has brought to us in social media is that you don't have a choice but to be transparent and honest. And a byproduct of that is people wanting to go to where things are made because you believe in the product. You have a you have a sense that you're you're paying the person that made your beer. You're paying the person that made your whiskey. You're experiencing it in the way that they want you to experience and. It's more about that rawness and that attention to detail with the flavor 
and the people you're sharing that experience with and less about going to a bar and getting bottle service like it used to be and showing showing off and that type of thing. So I think there's been a cultural shift there. Uh, yeah. And then I think the third thing is what you what you described. It's that people have started to appreciate alcohol in a different way. Like, granted, there's there's no escaping that alcohol is a means to an end that people drink to relax and some different factors like that. But we've seen a shift from just vodka or just light beer to people drinking more flavorful products and things that while still could be conceived as sessionable, at least have really good flavor. Um, you know, products like the canteen vodka sodas that are out there that, you know, are alcoholic beverages, but have some flavor to them and, and something that you can identify and enjoy. And that's the way we treat our cocktail program at Treaty Oak too, where, you know, you can bounce back and forth from having stuff that are, you know, one of our special science-y cocktails that we did was called Aging Whiskey, where we have what's called white dog, which is the uh, the general term for unaged whiskey, um, because it comes <laughs> off the still clear. So a clear unaged whiskey, but then we work with folks like uh, Fat Ice, which is a, a custom ice company based out of Austin, to do things like an ice cube that has the various flavors in it that melt into the white dog that tastes just like an aging whiskey. So flavors like tobacco, wood, butter, cinnamon, things like that, that can come through from the ice. But then we also just make really good um, sweet teas with a shot of vodka in them. So it's like, you know, you can kind of choose your experience, but I do think that that, that last uh, tier of it has been important too, as people have began to at times drink less, but drink more to appreciate what they're having and the flavor aspect of it. Yeah, no, that's interesting, man. It almost kind of seems like the way wine enthusiasts approach wine has sort of transcended into other variations of alcohol a little bit. That is because, you know, like just growing up, it was like you know, there was like wine enthusiasts and they were just really into how it was cultivated and and, you know, the grapes and all that stuff. But now it just seems like you're seeing a lot more of that now in other forms of alcohol. You know, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, it is, man. And it's and even with food too. Like, you know, we, we, we take a lot of time in our company to talk to each other and have conversations about flavor and what we're tasting. And, you know, the longer people work with us, the more and more comfortable that they get with that conversation. But, you know, initially a lot of people like it's, it's when you talk about flavor, you say sour, sweet, um, maybe six to eight turns that people have for food. And on the other aspect of that, think if you were describing everything that you see, and all you had were eight words for it, like, you know, yellow, rough, and tall, or whatever it might be. So helping people expand how they can talk about the flavor experiences and feel comfortable with whatever word comes to mind is, is a big part of what we push, including we even do things like where we'll sit down and do whiskey tastings. And instead of just saying what you're tasting, we say, all right, let's identify each one of these whiskeys as a genre of music like maybe this one's punk rock or this one's you know more mm -hmm. of like some uh, some sort of like a, a, a jazz or something like that and then within that like identifying a band and then underneath that identifying a specific song even that this brings to you and the fun part of that with that kind of associative learning is that people remember it longer they'll, they'll look at that bottle of ghost hill and say oh man that reminded me of you know, some Operation Ivy song or something like that. And it's yeah. just, it's a fun way to get people to start to think about flavors and experiences differently. Um, 
but yeah, it's 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 cool getting to see that it's moved beyond kind of the wine snob world, if you will. I can say yeah. that because I I was one. I was when I did my song training. <laughs> but it's like it's it's just cool to get to talk through that and even seeing uh my own daughters. I've got a twelve year old, a nine year old, seeing them talk about the smells of different cheeses and mac and cheese and things like that, man. Yeah, no, that's awesome, man. I mean, like you said, kind of making the uh, correlation to music. I think that really personifies it for a lot of people, you know. So, um, yeah, my my uh, my last question for you: Where do you kind of see what's what's the vision like in the next you know five to ten years for Trudy Oak? Um, I know that's kind of a a nuanced question, but yeah, I definitely would love to hear kind of what you guys have going on, maybe what's in store. You know, there's a there's a few different comments that I would have there. I think that we're we're currently working on kind of some some I would I would say some some cutting edge technology and innovation with the changes we're seeing in the ready to drink and cocktail world, um, including later this year having our own line of hundred ml cocktails come out. We have an old fashioned and a peach julep on that front, and then on the uh, twelve ounce cans, kind of something that's a uh, what I would say is an upgrade from your your white claws or your canned seltzers that you're seeing out there. Um, we're doing a um, oh the Hill Country Highballs, which are a blend of whiskey with uh, soda with a flavoring agent. So it's it's cool to get to see those coming and kind of where those could take things. Um, yeah. But then also it's 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 maintaining our focus on producing better and better bourbons and growing the bourbon production. Um, and then, you know, as we look outside of Texas, you know, Texas is such a big backyard to have. We still have a lot to win there. But I do think that as we're looking to spread outside of Texas, the, the thought process of being able to use our barbecue program and take that on the road and, and honestly simply get liquid to lips as much as we can. Awesome, man. Yeah, no, I uh, like I said, y'all, the brand the brand recognition you guys have, I think is, uh, super intriguing. Um, I love it. You know, I like seeing people in Austin just win and get their brand out there and turn it into something huge. So it's definitely been inspiring. Um, yeah, I appreciate you doing the the interview today. Absolutely, man. This has been a lot of fun and I, I appreciate the opportunity. And yeah. next time you're out at Treaty Oak, uh, just, just drop me a line. I'd love to shake hands and give you a tour out there, man. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. I'll uh, next time I get out there, which hopefully will be before it. I'd like to get out there before it gets real hot this summer. So, I'll uh, I'll shoot you a line when I do. That sounds good, man. You got to remember the uh, the Treaty Oak motto, which is uh, "Live fast and drink slow." <laughs> there you go. Hey, appreciate it, Daniel. Thank you. You bet. Again. Thanks for having me on, man. All right. All right. Take care. Trapped in Austin podcast.